Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 116, and we are going to introduce to you this crazy thing that we are referring to as the Tiki Bago. We're also going to talk about classic RVs and vans and some pitfalls therein. A tale from the road involving the time when I used to work on RVs professionally. And a product review of a very simple and very useful speaker. Hello everyone, welcome back. Very happy to have you here. Before we get started and I reveal the thing I've been teasing about, I have to bring something to your attention that was brought to my attention. A lovely woman by the name of Wendy pointed out to me that Gas Buddy has some issues that you should be aware of. I have talked about Gas Buddy a lot recently because, well, you know why. Now, as you may have heard, there is no such thing as a free lunch. And in fact, Gas Buddy, though it advertises itself as a free app, well, you know what they say about that. When something is free, that means you are the product. And yes, GasBuddy does in fact sell your data rather aggressively. And some of the places they sell your data to are places you may not want to have your data. For example, insurance companies. Yes, there was a report that GasBuddy is actually collecting your data, including your location data and things like your speed, and adding that to a database that insurance companies can access, which could be problematic if they start grading drivers and charging different fees. And well, you may just not want to be part of that. So Google this if you have any questions about it. If you want to find all the details, it's out there. But there is a great suggestion for how you can still use GasBuddy and not worry about any of this stuff. And that is to basically use the website. Go to the GasBuddy website, type in your address where you are, and have it search for gas stations nearby. That will just give you the prices of the gas stations, which is probably all you want. And then that's it. Close the website and you're done. You will avoid all the tracking. And as I've said before, I don't think their program where they give you a big discount if you use their card is really worth it because you can find better programs with credit cards that give you benefits everywhere. So thank you, Wendy, for bringing that to my attention. I still think GasBuddy is a very useful thing, but hey, you don't have to play their games. Okay, I was rather teasy last week. I kept talking about this crazy, stupid thing I'm doing. And well, now I'm going to announce it. If you will recall, I purchased with my wife a piece of property on the Illinois River in North Central Illinois. And this is a great thing. This opens up all kinds of opportunities. And I talked about the process of buying land. And uh, one thing I didn't mention is how hard it is to get a loan to buy just land. If you would like to do this, know that buying, getting land loans, especially now, is very difficult. But we have the land secured. We're closing on it at the end of the month. Everything's fine there. This is mostly coming from my wife, which just demonstrates that I did, in fact, marry very, very well. We had the property, we had the van, and we started looking at it. And my wife is like, you know, it would be nice to have a tiny house or something on there. And, well... We looked at tiny houses and they have a lot of problems and they're not really that inexpensive. And you basically have to build a house (laughs) 
that is tiny, which has all kinds of problems with regulations and restrictions, and it's going to take forever. So we thought that maybe wasn't the thing to do right now. And then we thought, what if we got, you know, one of those cute old vintage trailers, like an Airstream or Starflight or something like that. And we looked at those, and we found a few that might be good, but we don't have a truck to tow them with. And uh, just on a whim, I thought, you know, what if we looked at classic RVs? And then we found this thing. <laughs> it's the Tiki Bago. <laughs> now, no, Tiki Bago isn't some lake monster that's been forgotten to time. <laughs> it is a portmanteau of the words Tiki and Winnebago. And yes, you already know what I'm talking about. Somebody who I've had the pleasure to talk to, actually, took the time to spend a year renovating a 1972 Winnebago Indian D-22 and turning it into a tiki hut. That's right, folks. It's a rolling tiki hut. Now, I can describe it to you on the podcast. It has bamboo mat ceilings. It has tikis all over the inside. The upholstery was redone with a tiki style. There's a giant shark jaw hanging over the bed. I mean, you get the idea, but you really kind of have to see this thing to experience it. So I just put up a video that I'll link in the show notes. It is called Introduction Tiki Bago Land. And I, with my wife, Jen, we talk about the land a bit and then the Winnebago. So I do heartily suggest that you go look at that. But for the curious, and heck, you're listening to this podcast now, and maybe you're driving and can't watch a video or whatever, I will describe this thing to you. Now, this is a 1972 Winnebago. That is one of the classic Winnebago shapes. The They call them eyebrow Winnebagos. This was what RVs basically looked like back in the day. It's got that weird eyebrow, and it's very angular, and there's nothing round on it at all except for the headlights. These were built on a Dodge chassis most often, and the chassis is called an M375, which gets super complicated. It's kind of an amalgamation of the M3 and the M400 doesn't really matter, but if you're a Winnebago person, you know what I'm talking about. And it's called a D22 because it's a dinette style. There's a dinette in the middle, and it's about 22 feet long. It's probably more like 23 or 24 feet when you consider the bumpers and the ladder, but it's 22 feet long. So actually, that's not that big, right? Even though this is far from the smallest Winnebago made at the time, 22 feet is like the length of an extended Sprinter or a Ford Transit. It is basically a van. Now, I have often talked about how van life is a big tent issue. So far as I'm concerned, if you're living and traveling in a vehicle, you count in van life. And heck, if you're living in a tent, I'll count that too. So to me, this thing is a van. It's a big van. It's a very old van. And it's a very thirsty van. The engine in this thing is a big block V8, a Dodge 413, classic Dodge engine. It was around for 30 years. It's been in all kinds of vehicles, including the Plymouth Fury from Christine. <laughs> That's right. The Winnebago has Christine's engine in it. 
which um well i'm I'm just figuring I'm gonna make friends with it real soon, real early. I don't know if I need to drip some blood into the carburetor or what, but we'll figure that out uh and eventually that's gonna happen anyway because the truth is that this is an old engine that's gonna need attention now, I am old enough to remember carburetors. My first car had a carburetor. I know what it's like to flood an engine. Young folks may not know what the heck I'm talking about here. It didn't used to be that you would get in and start the engine. Like, you didn't just turn the key and the engine started. That wasn't how you drove a car. You had to do things. <laughs> now, if the car was really old, you had to pull a choke, start the car, and then close the choke. And then they came out with this thing called an automatic choke, which this RV has, which is, it basically opens it up so all the air and fuel in the world can get in there and give this thing a chance of starting. And it's activated when you step on the gas pedal. So basically you'll step on the gas pedal halfway and then start it. But on some of these older ones, you have to kind of pump the pedal and every vehicle had its own way to start it. And if you screwed it up, you would get too much fuel in the carburetor and there wasn't enough space for air and it was called flooding and you couldn't start it. And the way that you would fix that is you would take off the air cleaner, which was on top of the carburetor, stick a screwdriver in the carburetor to keep the flap open and then crank it until it started. <laughs> this is all the wonderful stuff that I'm going to have to deal with having bought this classic RV. Now, I'm going to talk about money because I like being frank. And while money may be the last taboo we have these days, I mean, you know, we're much more eager to talk about sex than we are about money these days. I want to talk about money so you guys have an understanding of what you'll get into if you do this kind of a thing. They were basically asking $15,000 for this Winnebago. Now, if you look at the prices of old Winnebagos like this, that is a very high price. If you want a classic Winnebago as a project, you can often get them for free. You can certainly get them for a few thousand dollars. And if you get a nicely refinished one, like one that's serviceable and stuff works, yeah, then you're getting up to $10,000 range. Of course, if someone has really turned this into a showpiece and it's pristine, yeah, then you can get up to $25,000, $30,000. I mean, it, and again, those are one-of-a-kind things, and anything one-of-a-kind can be more expensive. So they were asking $15,000 for this thing. They took it in on trade on a Sprinter. And, well, that's a lot of money for an old, old Winnebago. So this thing is in between pristine and a project. It is not at all perfect, and it's going to be very hard to find a vehicle this old that's perfect. But it is unique, and the person who did the renovation did a very, very good job and replaced all kinds of stuff in it. It has a new air conditioner, a new refrigerator, a new water heater, a new furnace, new water tanks, all new upholstery, all new flooring, all new ceilings. They repaired a big leak in the roof. They repaired body damage on the front of the vehicle. I mean, they did a lot of work on this thing. So how much is it worth? And the answer to this is always, how much are you willing to pay for it? Now, we had a budget in mind for this project, and we decided to offer $9,000 on this vehicle that they were asking $15,000 for, and they accepted it. So that's what. We paid $9,000 for this vehicle. So you're probably thinking, well, what about the ambulance? What about the Sprinter? That costs significantly more than this, I might add. Well, nothing. Uh, this, is, this doesn't impact that at all. We are going to put this vehicle out to pasture. 
it has lived a long life and given many miles per miles, which is how people refer to these things rather than miles per gallon, and it's time for it to rest. And our plan is to put this thing on the property we just bought and have it sit there as kind of a permanent fixture. Although semi-permanent, I do plan to keep it registered and running so that I can go into town and you know, get oil changes and just so I can move it. I think I'm actually legally required to do that in the state of Illinois. But also it's nine minutes from Starved Rock, which is this amazing state park. And I could see loading it up with people and heading down to Starved Rock from time to time. <laughs> but, and this is a very big but, this vehicle is in Oregon. And it's not even in easy Oregon. It's in southwest Oregon in a place called Grants Pass. And you may have gathered from that name that it's in the mountains. And, well, it needs to come to Illinois where it's going to live. So how do I get it to Illinois? Well, this thing's old. It gets five miles a gallon. Gas is, I don't know what gas is going to be in a week. I mean, it could be more, it could be less, but it's going to be probably $5 a gallon just totally making up a number uh it's 2100 miles you can do the math there this thing is about going to cost a dollar a mile to drive to illinois so i thought well all right well we don't need to drive it um and plus the thing's top speed is probably going to be 50 or 55 miles an hour so it's going to take a long time what if we just had it hauled you know and i don't mean behind a tow truck i mean put on a flatbed and driven out here well so here's a reality about that Truck drivers are in short supply. I put up a bid on this thing. And basically, there's a, there's a site that will let you say, hey, I have this vehicle. I need to move it from here to there. I'm willing to pay X amount of dollars. Or you can say, tell me how much you'd like for this. And I did both. Didn't get a bite at all. Nobody was interested in moving this thing. So I called a heavy hauler company. This is a company that moves like bulldozers and stuff and did get a quote. And they were happy to do it. And they could do it on my timeline. And it would only cost $8,500. That's right, $500 less than the total cost of the vehicle. So I am stuck with the options of paying another $8,500 just to move this vehicle or driving it myself for a dollar a mile. And that's what I'm going to do. I have plane tickets booked next Wednesday. I will be flying out to Grants Pass, Oregon and driving this thing back to Illinois. And I've given myself eight days to do it. I will keep you guys updated, of course. Next week's podcast will have to be pre-recorded because I'll be flying on Wednesday, so I won't be talking about it very much. But I can promise you I'll have an interesting tale from the road the week following that. And I, I intend to post updates on YouTube, so if you're following me on YouTube, it's built to go, a YouTube channel, uh, you can find out more about the Tiki Biego there. But... Folks, take a look at this thing. It's it's really pretty cool. Even if you're not into this kind of stuff, this person put a lot of work into renovating this, and we're very proud to have it, and we're going to fix things up. There's a few little things wrong here and there, and then add our own personal tiki flair to it. So we're going to make it even more tiki. It's fun. This is a nice husband-wife couple-y thing, and we're going to have a blast. And heck, you can have a blast along with us. Tech Talk. Let's 
talk about classic RVs here. Not the Tiki Bago. Let's talk about classic RVs in general. Because maybe I just inspired you to get a classic RV. Like, hey, what? You know, vans are so expensive right now. What if we could get one of these free RVs and build that out? And we'd save a ton of money and we'd have this really cool rig and we could travel the country. And yeah, yeah, you could do all those things. You could also win the lottery. (laughs) Those are things that can happen. Look, you can do whatever you set your mind to. If you make things a priority, you can make them happen. But I want to warn you about the pitfalls of doing something like this. Now, obviously, the person who renovated this RV got the RV. And I actually know how much he got it for. It was $2,500. And he completely fixed it up and he traded it in for significantly more than that. And heck, I'm buying it for $9,000. So he put a lot of value into it and made it something really cool. It's the kind of thing people take pictures of as it goes down the street, but he got rid of it. So why would he do that? Why would he get rid of it? Because it wasn't practical for traveling in. When all is said and done, It's a 50-year-old vehicle that gets atrocious gas mileage, has extremely primitive mechanics, and things break all the time. And then when they break, you can't get the parts, and people don't want to work on it. Most mechanics these days were born after the fading of the carburetor. They don't know what points are. They don't know how to adjust a carburetor. They don't know how to advance the timing. And if you want those things done, you're going to have to do them yourselves. So if you are interested in this vintage RV project idea, know that it's an enormous amount of work. And I strongly urge you not, not to get a vintage motorhome. Get a vintage trailer. Because with a vintage trailer, you are not dealing with an engine, and that's where you're going to run into the most trouble. Now, you're going to run into other trouble. The roof is going to leak. Water is going to have gotten into the walls. You're going to basically have to rip the entire thing apart and rebuild it all. That's how almost all of these vintage trailers go. You are probably not going to find the perfect little vintage trailer that's been in a farmer's barn for 30 years. I mean, you might. Those do exist. But even then, mice are going to have lived in there and torn up the seats, and it's going to smell like pigeons. And (laughs) Anyway, these things are fun. They're great. They're lookers. People will take pictures of them, but they are a lot of work. So even though you might be able to get into them for cheap, you're trading your labor for money. And that's exactly the kind of thing you might want to do. But don't be one of these folks who has $5,000 in the bank and spends $2,000 on a vintage RV and then after removing the interior realizes they don't have enough money to even put in a refrigerator. Never mind. A water system, a bed, a way to cook, insulation, solar, etc., etc., etc. Okay? Message received? Excellent. Now go off and do what you want to do. Product review. So one of the vintage things in this RV I bought is that it has an AM radio. Like, that's it. It's literally an old AM radio with push buttons, and that's all there is in this thing. And folks, I have to drive this across the country, and have you listened to AM radio recently? (laughs) I I am going to have enough trouble staying sane. I'm not going to be doing that to myself. So I thought, oh, geez, what am I going to do? Should I install a stereo in it really quick? Because I'm pretty good at installing car stereos. I've done it a lot. 
but maybe I don't want to. I mean, after all, this thing is not going to be driven a lot. It's just going to sit. So I thought about things to do. And, and I searched for options, and I found this thing that I actually bought that I think is going to be a great addition, not only to the Winnebago, but to van life. And I, I don't know exactly what you call these things, but it's basically an ATV sound system. Now, the one I got is from Boss, and it's model number UTV, you know, ATV, UTV, same thing, UTV-4B, and it is a weatherproof sound system. I got one with four-inch speakers because I didn't want it to be too big, and it's basically, well, imagine this. It's a length of PVC tube that's colored black, which I guess makes it ABS, and then has an elbow on each end, and inside the elbows are speakers, and it's dead simple. It does one thing and one thing only, and it amplifies sound. You hook it up to your phone, either with an aux jack cord or Bluetooth, and everything's on your phone. There isn't even an app to download. Basically, it just extends the speakers of your phone. You control the volume on your phone. Everything's controlled on your phone, and you have sound. And the beauty of this is it's loud enough that you can stick it on the dashboard of your vehicle, and boom, instant stereo. And then when you go, like, hang out at the picnic table, you bring it with you, and boom, instant stereo. It's basically a one-stop shop for all audio. And again, it's dead simple and waterproof. It doesn't have any knobs. It doesn't have any batteries. It hooks up to a cigarette lighter. That's how it gets power. And it's exactly what I want for this application. I can make this thing work no matter what. I can move it into the bedroom at night if I want. I can move it onto the kitchen table if I'm cooking. I love it. it it's kind of like I started off looking for like an 80s style boombox kind of a thing, but those were super complicated. They had lots of stuff going on. I really, really like the simplicity of this. Now, they come in all different sizes, and some of them have LED lights, which apparently these days we have to put LED lights on everything. I don't care about any of that. I got the simplest one I could, and it's fairly inexpensive. Right now, they're asking for 10527 which is a weird number, but that's fine. And it comes with an aux cord, a 12-volt cigarette lighter plug, and even a socket, so you can wire this into your car or van any way you want. It, it's all right there. It comes with a strap, uh, so you can actually wear it over your shoulder, and I'm going to carry it on the airplane that way. <laughs> and then, if you really want, you can mount it to your ATV, or your bicycle handlebars, or your jet ski, or, or whatever. It's meant to be put anywhere. So again, that's the Boss Audio Systems UTV-4B. I'll have a link in the show notes. A place to visit. Years ago now, I wrote an article for Atlas Obscura called The Essential Guide to Bioluminescence. <laughs> Basically, I created an article about all these different bioluminescent places you could go and things you can see. And there's a lot of them. There's Bioluminescence is a very cool phenomenon, and you can find it in many places all around the world. But there's one place in Tennessee that's super special because it has the largest population of what are called synchronous fireflies. Synchronous. That's right. They blink at the same time. It's, it's pretty cool. Now, this is in the Smoky Mountains. And uh, many evenings in the spring... These fireflies congregate, and you can be out there at night in the forest, and it's pitch black, and you don't see anything. And then, bang! All these lights all around you start blinking and flashing, and then they go out. 
and then a few seconds later, bang, blink, flash, blink, flash, all around, everywhere you go, and then there's nothing. It's a really interesting phenomenon. It's very difficult to photograph in video, but I have seen a couple of documentaries on these things. Boy, I would love, love to see this. I have not been. I should make this a big priority on my bucket list, but I haven't seen it yet. But hey, you can put it on your bucket list. But... As you might imagine, this is a very, very popular phenomenon, and it's actually now a lottery system to get into the park and find a place to park your vehicle so you can watch these. So I will have a link in the show notes for that, and I can tell you that on April 26th, 2022, this year, if you're listening in 2022, is when they're going to announce the dates for the Fireflies, and then they're going to open the lottery on April 29th, And then on May 2nd, they will close the lottery. And then on May 12th, you will find out if you can do this. And it does cost. It costs about 25 bucks to go and see this. But this is a once in a lifetime show. It is absolutely amazing. And if you can at all do this, I I recommend you do. Again, it's in the Great Smoky Mountains in the Tennessee part. And it is firmly, firmly on my bucket list. Resource Recommendation. So I talked a little bit about my Part 107 drone pilot's license, which I I still haven't received the certificate yet. That takes a little bit of time. But I did pass the test, and I've fulfilled all the requirements for for the certificate, so I'm just waiting for it. But it's a little annoying because the test they make you take is basically the same as for a private pilot, like you're flying a plane. I mean, it's not exactly the same, but a lot of the information is the same. You have to learn to read sectional charts and things like that. It's, uh, it's, it's a lot. And the annoying part of that is that nearly everything you need to know is encompassed in a single app. (laughs) And so if you have a drone and you don't have this app, get this app. This, this app is, is life for drone pilots. And it is called B4 You Fly. And that is spelled letter B, number four, letter U, F-L-Y, Before You Fly. And it's a wonderful app that when you fire it up, it determines your location with your permission and then looks to see if there's any reason why you can't fly your drone that day. For example, if you're in a military flight path, it's going to say, um, there will be F-18s flying overhead. You may not want to launch here. Or if there are other drone pilots in the area, they can announce their presence and it will also appear there. And then, depending on what kind of a drone you have, I have a DJI Mavic Air 2. It reads settings from this and will basically set your drone that way. So it'll set a maximum height for your drone if there's some kind of a maximum height restriction. Honestly, I wish the test for part 107 was learning how to use this app perfectly because that's where all the stuff that you're going to get into trouble with is. And if you're in a restricted area, the app will tell you right away. Definitely, if you're even interested in drones, get this app. It's completely free. It's published by the FAA. And while you can't officially rely on the app to secure your license, you as a pilot are still liable for anything you do with your drone. This will not defend you in court. It does actually give you all the information you need. And uh, I, I feel much better using it that I'm in a safe place to fly. So that's before you fly. It's in your app store. You can find it. 
Tales from the Road. I have mentioned a few times that I used to work for an RV dealership, so I thought I would tell you the story of that. When I moved to Utah, it was 1988, and my only vehicle was a Toyota Mini Cruiser. Now, I didn't live in it. It was my daily driver, and I would go camping in it from time to time, and I loved this thing. It was I talked about it a couple weeks ago. It was fully self-contained, 17 feet, fit in any parking lot. And it was great. I liked it. And so with a group of friends, we moved from the Northeast to Utah. Because at the time in the 80s, Utah was a very inexpensive place to live. And there was a giant college there. And my plan was that I would move out there and go to college and get a degree and all that kind of stuff. And, well, you know, plans change. I bought a computer and that changed my life, but that's a whole other story. Anyway, I needed a job and I did a bunch of jobs and learned very quickly that back then Utah was different from Massachusetts. You basically weren't as well protected as a worker in Utah as you were in Massachusetts. For example, they wouldn't pay you overtime. You could work 60 hours a week and there'd be no overtime, even though you were an hourly employee. Wages were super, super low. And they basically just didn't treat you all that well. So I tried a few different jobs and really couldn't find anything that I meshed with. Until one day in the paper, I saw an ad for what is known as a lot boy at Ardell Brown RV in Sandy, Utah, a place that no longer exists. And I pulled up there in my RV and talked to the sales manager. And he basically said, I've got a hundred applications for this job. Now, this was a job that paid barely minimum wage. Why should I hire you? And I said, because you're not going to find anybody else that drives an RV as their daily driver. And that was enough. (laughs) That got me the job. (laughs) Now, I didn't know all that much about RVs at the time. I mean, I knew what I had to know because I had one, but I didn't know a lot about their history and the concepts behind them. And I Learned very quickly because one of my jobs there was to take in the trade-ins and prep them for sale. So I got to see all kinds of crazy RVs coming in, you know, ancient Airstreams and old styles of truck campers. And I also got to see all the mistakes people had made. I saw what happened if you tried to crank down a tent trailer without closing the furniture. I saw what happened if you tried to stop a trailer without any brake fluid in it. <laughs> That's not any fun. And I saw what happened when you hit a bridge with a fifth wheel. Don't do that. No, sir. It was horrible and wonderful at the same time. I mean, I really loved the work. I loved working on the RVs. I loved getting to see all the RVs. And then they promoted me. They promoted me to be the shop manager because like most RV dealerships, they had a a little shop to manage things. And that was the end. I I am not good at that. Um, I... Cash registers and I don't get along. I don't understand their programming. They confuse me. And the laws in Utah were so different that I had a hard time adjusting. For example, in Massachusetts, you don't charge tax on services. You only charge tax on things. And that was a basic concept through the Massachusetts tax system in the 80s. I don't know what it's like now. But in Utah, everything was taxed. Everything. Every, everything. And I had to switch modes from being somebody who was trying to help people. Because lot boys, you're there to help somebody. Someone comes to you with a problem, you're there to fix it. For example, one of the things I did was fill propane. I had a propane 
dispenser's license even. I had to go to school for that and everything. And, um, you know, I was there to help them. But being the shop manager, I was supposed to do everything I could to get money out of people. And that was a two-way street, but uh, it was uncomfortable for me. It's not a position I like to be in. It makes me a terrible salesperson. And I say this as a travel agent. <laughs> I'm really not great at selling you things. It's just not good. Not not a place I like to be. But I love to talk about stuff. And uh, boy, if they needed someone to sell a used RV, I could probably do that. So long as I could give it to them for a really good price. Which the RV dealership didn't think was a great idea. So I didn't last there all that long. I was probably there eight months. But I learned a ton a ton about RVs and RV culture and all the different kinds of RVs. And uh, just one quick story. Utah in the 80s, at least Salt Lake City, this, well, this was in Sandy, which is part of the major Salt Lake City area, but it's, it's significantly south of the city, had a lot of crime. Um, there was a lot of property crime. Um, I was broken into, my RV got broken into, my house got broken into, a friend's house got broken into. This was pretty common. And the RVs parked in the back of the lot would get broken into. And they would basically go down the train tracks, jump a fence, and then just smash and grab TVs and microwaves and whatever they could out of these RVs. So this happened one day, and I was the first to notice it. And they told me to go take all the damaged RVs and bring them to the front of the lot. Well, a lot of these are trailers, and we have to move them around a lot. And so what they had to move these around, which was pretty cool was an old tug. Now, a tug is a model of vehicle designed for moving airplanes. You you see these all the time at the airport. That's what we had. Now, we had the little tiny one, the one that they usually use for baggage carts, and they look exactly the same today, but I got to drive that thing, and that was so much fun. Now, <laughs> it didn't have any brakes at all. There were no brakes in this thing, so you had to plan your route, basically, and try to stop in a flat spot <laughs> just by turning the engine off and using the transmission to kind of slow the vehicle and sometimes the 40-foot trailer down. <laughs> yeah, good times. I managed not to kill anybody, and, well, that's always a good thing. So, yeah, that's the basic disjointed story of my time at Ardell Brown RV. I do have some fond memories of it, but overall, it was not a good match for me. Folks, thank you very much for getting through another episode with me. I absolutely appreciate you following me on these adventures, and I hope at least some of what I say from time to time is useful to you. If not, you can let me know. <laughs> I am Jeff at builttogo.com. That's three T's. No, <laughs> that's two T's, not three, not one. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. And until next time, remember the ridiculous words of gamer Ben Schiltz, who said, Leroy Jenkins. At least I have chicken.